Our scripture reading at this time, Deuteronomy 32, 9 and 10. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land and in a waste, howling wilderness. He led him about. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. What a metaphor. Pastor Day speaks on the good news about the church. Good news about the church. In a series that I have been doing for, oh, forever it seems like, and may continue for more, I, I have had a passion in my heart to believe that all of our doctrines need to be presented as Christ centered. And if we can't present them that way, we probably are not understanding them correctly. So I, I want to be able to help in that process of rephrasing them. And so one of our doctrines is a doctrine about church. Rather than just to tell you that church is Seventh Adventist church is the you know the remnant church and how right we are and point to ourselves, I want to talk about what God feels about His church and how important that is. And so that's the good news. That's the true good news about church. What's so great about it? <laughs> okay, is church a success? Well, I, I found this slide. Look at all the various different kind of churches you have represented there. In 2010, there were 2.18 billion Christians worldwide. 33% of the planet is Christian. Now, those individuals, 26% are in Europe, 37 in America, 24 in Sub-Saharan Africa, and 13 Pacific and Asia and a few other minor places. Since 1910, the world population of Christians has jumped from 600 million at 1910 to 2.18 today. Okay, the world population is 6.9. So you can see Christianity composes about a third of the population of the planet. So is the church a success? In 1910, 93% of Christians lived in Europe and America are the Americas, which stretch all the way down to South America, etc. Today, only 80% of Americans are Christians, compared with Brazil, 90%, the Philippines, 93%, Mexico, 93%, and Middle East, where it all started, 4%. We worship in 350,000 churches, um, and about 60% of those churches have an attendance of less than 100. That's in America. In numbers of members, the Seventh-day Adventist Church in North America and Canada ranks about 23rd as far as the number of members that they have. We're not off the charts. We're there. 23rd out of I don't know how many. And here you can see a pie chart showing world churches today. And if you take a quick look at that, it kind of helps you to see that Christianity is the red section, the big slice. It's the biggest slice there, isn't it? And then you think of Islam. That's pretty good size. Hinduism, well, agnosticism. Wow, I'm surprised how many of those there are. I think that is growing. That number is growing. And the reason why it's growing, I think, is because the Christians are not giving the message about God that they need to give. They're talking about themselves too much. And you can see some of the others are pretty small. 
When a survey was taken by Barna Research Group not that long ago, um, they discovered a sad reality that I think the church is now aware of but not know, doesn't know exactly what to do about. 59% of young Christians disconnect either permanently or for extended periods of time after age 15. How high a percentage is that? Approaching two-thirds. And this was all pointed out uh, uh, in the book called You Lost Me and the Finger of Blame by these 59% is placed upon the church. Did you get that, what I just said? They're leaving because of the church. Something in the church, they turn it away. Many teens grow up concluding Christianity is, and you look at the terms, boring, old-fashioned, out of touch with reality, and the church is not growing, and if that's the case. Their top desire for church is that they want the church to assist them in connecting with God. They don't feel that the church helps them with that. To learn about their faith, likewise they don't feel the church is helping them with that. To help them to serve others in a world that is so fast changing that the church doesn't know how to keep up with current world. Developing loving and relational environments. Those are the things young people are looking for. And they look to the church and they say, you lost me. That's what they're saying. Um, teens are four times more likely to go online than to seek spiritual things from the church. They want their church to help them become meaningfully engaged with the world they live in. But if the church fails in causing them to become meaningfully engaged with the world, that not only do they reject church, they reject who else? God. Too often church either demonizes or ignores the world that they must live in. They're going into a world vastly different than the world we lived in. And so um, they find that the uh, only stance that the church seems to be able to take is at war with the current world. That's their world. Is that going to work for them? No. And so the church is at war with science as far as they see. The church is too judgmental. The church is isolated, closed, and exclusive. And they don't see how they can fit leaving them feeling unaccepted, ill-equipped, or abandoned by the church. With hostile feeling, irreverent, blunt, frustration, and pain. It's a painful divorce, those 59%. Believing churches are not safe places, and they leave. They feel like they have no choice but to leave. Because the church is ignoring them, dismissing them, and giving them no help. Now, that's the situation about church. Now, our topic today is the good news about church. So, having said all of that, let's take another different track and look for the answers to the questions somewhere else. And look at them in your Bible. Um, this is an artist's depiction of Isaiah. Remember, the Lord put a coal of fire on his tongue, 700 years before Christ, God showed Isaiah the importance of church. And when you go through the Bible and you look at what the Bible says about church, it's what I did in preparation for this sermon, you find some amazing things that are hard to understand. Uh, first, he says to Isaiah, he showed him darkness everywhere. And then 
the Apostle Paul describes what darkness is and to, for us to understand what that means. And this is a verse you're all familiar with, first chapter of Romans. Failure to teach or to demonstrate godliness produces darkness. Because if God is not there, it's dark before the creation of the world. Their imaginations become vain. Their foolish hearts darken. They profess themselves to be wise, but instead they're fools. This is what it's like without church to bring God's light. The glory of God becomes corrupted. They are controlled by lust. Truth becomes a lie. Natural affections become vile. You maybe have seen this in the lives of young people today. They, without church to, 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 to guard them, these are the things happen. Minds, and we're just taking this right out of what Paul said in Romans chapter 1, but it's being played out in the lives of young people today that don't feel like church can be a place of support for them. Their minds degrade to the lowest level. They're filled with unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, all of the structures that God has placed in to keep them safe. Uh, is, is absent. Full of envy, murder, debate, decease, uh, deceit, malignity, backbiters, haters of God. Well, I don't need to go through all that. That's what's happening to the world today when they move away from church. Or that's what happens to churches that cease to be light. Going back to Isaiah. When God arrives in Isaiah's vision, Suddenly, the whole earth becomes what? That's a synonym for church. Churches are places of light filled with people who have God in them, and that makes them places of light. How special that is. So out of the, after the darkness, Isaiah sees the light, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of your glory. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. The light is the church. It's God's people. That they dwell in the land of the shadow of death. Upon them hath the light shined. The chapters that follow, he saw victory everywhere. The Spirit of God was poured out over all flesh. Isaiah is a great book to read for this. God's people come home from everywhere. You know, they were wherever they were at, in darkness. And they see the light, and they come to the light. And they are changed. And that's what God showed Isaiah. And it's one of the most beautiful pictures we have in the Bible of what church is all about and why God loves it so much. Darkness covering the earth, gross darkness the people. The light comes. Uh, arise, shine, for the light is come. The glory of the Lord is risen upon you. The Lord shall arise upon you, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. And the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and the kings to the brightness of thy rising. Let's put this down in real practical terms. Fort Bragg is craving for that light. They're craving for it. And And when I read the stories about when we organized this church so long ago. Do you know who made some huge donations to make this church possible? The local lumber company. Different people in town that made it, made it possible for the church to be established. They wanted a light. They wanted this kind of a place. The world, even though they're not walking with us, they want this. And they will come if they see the light. Anybody say amen to that? 
So the results, lift up your eyes round about and see. All they gather themselves together. They come to thee. The sons shall come from afar. Their daughters nursed at thy side. Sons and strangers, sons and strangers. We don't have a financial problem. The money's out there. They'll bring it and give it. They'll do it. They're giving it to God because they believe that God is here. Therefore the gates shall be open continually. They shall not be shut day nor night. In Isaiah's day, this is about Israel, which was the church. The church should be, now this is from Isaiah 61, a blessing to all. The Spirit of the Lord God hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. The meek. What are the meek? People who are willing to be led and guided. They don't think of more. The, they don't think more of themselves than they do of God. These are meek people. Sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to open the prisons to them that are bound. Now, if the community of Fort Bragg saw this kind of spirit, light would come and people would find miracles taking place in their lives. To comfort all that mourn, beauty for ashes, oil of joy for mourning, garment of praise instead of the spirit of heaviness. We will be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. The old wastes, places will be repaired. Strangers shall feed your flock and plow your fields. Now, this is what God sees in a church, as a place where the whole world is blessed because the spirit, the light, the goodness of God is able to come through the church to the people. Now, that's good news. Churches should be. You shall be named priest of the Lord, minister of the Lord. Your seed will be known to the Gentiles. My soul is joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation, covered me with a robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decked, decketh himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with jewels. As the earth bringeth forth her bud, and as the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. And where is it going to come from? The church. It's going to come through the church. Now, that's the reason why God has a positive feeling about church. That's why he's so gun-ho about church. He believes in this. He knows this is going to happen. And so he just has been writing about it, or had his prophets write about it from the very beginning. God chose Israel to be what? Wells of salvation to the world. Churches are artesian springs, fountains, springing up and blessing everybody. Can a woman forget her suckling child? Yeah, but God can never forget. He found us in a desert land, as Dean read, and we became the apple of his eye because he chose us. There was certainly nothing in Jacob. It's what God chose, and he's chosen the church. The church is more important than any one of us. It's his vehicle that God uses to reach the world. Enfeebled, oh, write the reference down. If you don't know this reference, Ellen White says it better, what I've been trying to say, than anybody else that I know of. Acts of the Apostles, chapter or, uh, number 12, page 12. And you can see all the rest of the references there. She says this frequently. 
Enfeebled and defective as it may appear, the church is the one object upon which God bestows in a special sense his supreme regard. The church. It is the theater of his grace in which he delights to reveal his power to transform hearts. Can you beat that? Isn't that wonderful? Nothing else in this world is so dear to God as his church. That is good news. It's about God. It's not about us. It's not about how great we are or how right we are. It's about God and what he can do through people who are willing to be meek and let the light shine through them. Nothing is guarded by him with such jealous care. Nothing so offends God as an act that injures the fluence of those who are doing his service. So he's inseparably, inseparably connected to it. I, he says he will marry us. Thou art fair. <laughs> he says Christ loved the church and gave himself to it. He's the bridegroom. Connection with Christ means connection with the church. Even if you don't officially acknowledge it, you are in his church when you're connected to him. He wants you to be in his local physical church as well. Ah, oh, lively stones, spiritual house, make spiritual sacrifices, a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle. This is what's so amazing to me. Not having spot or wrinkle. Hmm. Is he talking about us? <laughs> is he talking about us? You go back and look through the Bible. You look through all, the Bible tells the horrible traits, doesn't miss hardly any of them, of the patriarchs. And yet there is church. You get to the New Testament. <laughs> yeah, well, even before you get to the New Testament, you get to the period of the, of the kings and the prophets. And what a horrible, horrible story. But it's his church. Right? You get into the New Testament and you get to the, uh, uh, the, the uh, apostles and they address these letters to the saints. And when they get that done with, then they tell about what's wrong with the saints. But nevertheless, they're saints, and there's no doubt in anybody's mind about what? That God has his affections set upon them. And nothing can turn his affections away. Is that good news? So God isn't just blind to our faults. He's fully a cognizant of all of our faults. He's had it all written down and recorded. But it doesn't change one iota of the way he feels about church. Amen! How wonderful that! Uh, not having spot or wrinkle. He sees our spots and wrinkles, but he doesn't recognize them. He certainly is able. We're joint heirs with Christ. Now, if we're joint heirs with Christ, and it says that I will grant to sit with me in my throne, to him overcometh. We're sitting on Christ's throne? We would be glad to be below the hassock. But he puts us up on the throne. That's the church. And all through the universe, throughout all time, the security of the universe is somewhat secured by the church who knows what we know about God. And sin will never come back another time because of what we have learned. That's part of why we're so precious in his sight. Oh, well, I'm not going to go through all that. But you see Jesus walking in the candlesticks. That's a neat picture, too. Uh, you can, by the way, if, if I go, 
If I go over these slides too fast and you can't see them, they're online, aren't they? Albert, they're going to be posted online. The PowerPoint, so you can get them all if you need. Okay, take a look at this. How good a start did the church get when it started out? Whoops. 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 Uh-oh. Oh, no. Ugh. Yowie. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my. Cheating each other, lying, fighting all the time with God, turning against our own, our own families, talking to witches rather than to God. All the sins of David and followed by his son's sins. All the while God has been looking for a church. And when they found the prophets, they didn't like the spokespeople for God, so they threw them in wells. Or God's people, to get away, just went the opposite direction. God had to use fish to bring them back. Land of Canaan, first thing they did, instead of going in by faith, they wanted to worship the pagan gods. They got Moses even lose his temper at them. Smote the rock. Threw down the commandments. Finally, he had to lift up a serpent for them to look just so they get healed. 5,500 years go by. God's people are still killing each other. Chasing each other down in the mountains and killing them. If they have the Bible, they kill them. Put them in jail. Burn them at the stake. People that write the Bible for our own edification in our language killed. The man who put those amazing 95 theses on the door of the church set down the structure for Hitler to follow in the persecution of the Jews. Look at this. Puritans persecuting other Christians. Those that were persecuted turned the persecution on others. Now, is the problem of the history of the church a problem with God, or is it a problem of man? Let's take a look at this. There's an interesting story here. Two men went up to pray in the temple. One was a Pharisee, the other was a publican. So the Pharisee, which one is he, dressed in this red outfit with a shawl of white? He stood and prayed thus to himself, saying, God, I thank you that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this publican. I fast twice in the week, give tithes of all that I possess. And who knows how long he pontificated and how great he was. Over in the corner, the artist so well portrays, there's his publican. He's standing afar off, would not even lift up so much of his eyes into heaven. He knew he was a sinner. He smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Which one was the church? Oftentimes, the church is the Pharisees. Rarely is the church the publican. Jesus was telling us something really important here. Now, there were some nice things about Pharisees. Now, I'm going to get kind of personal here. Who are they? 
Well, they did some great things. They were credited with preserving the knowledge and sanctity of the law. They believed that the scriptures were given by God. They were passionate in their keeping of the law. They were revered for their piety. They emphasized education, evangelism, tithe paying. They were enthusiastic believers in the promised Messiah and firstly believed that they were the chosen. These people sound like Adventists. National heroes. They stood up for everything. They were there. What was wrong? Everything about their religion was external. It was legalistic. They believed that they knew everything and they had no more need for anything even from Jesus. They were intolerant of others. Everything had to fit their mode. Humility to them was a sign of weakness. The church that becomes a Pharisee church ceases to be a light. It goes dark. When you are humble like the, the publican, you can see that it can be still a light. Now, the Pharisee could not even imagine that publican can be a light, but that's the way God sees it. Jesus rejected the Pharisees. I'm going to get to a point here. Don't lose me here. He denounced them as hypocrites, offspring of vipers, serpents, and blind guides, denying that their righteousness qualified them for heaven. Publications, Publicans and harlots, he said, would be there first, but not them. He remained indifferent to their ascetic practices, their Levitical purity, and their style of Sabbath-keeping. The whole spirit of his life was flat in contradiction to their most cherished convictions. They made Christ and they made church a curse, a place of trickery, judgmentalism, inhumanity. The questions they asked him were not to learn but to trap their enemies and to turn public attitude against them. This is how they approached Christ. Any deviation from norms was considered a sin. Judgmentalism was their favorite activity. Religion for them was heartless. Uh, being human or humility was a sign of weakness. Can God change Pharisees? Here's a famous one that he changed. He was the best of them. Though I speak with the tongues of men, angels have not love. Though I become, I will become a sounding brass, tinkling single. Though I have all of the wonderful gifts of prophecy, understanding all mysteries and all knowledge, have not faith, so that I can remove mountains and have faith, and have not charity, I am nothing. So here is this Pharisee who realized that all that he thought was important was nothing. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, give my body to be burned. If I have not love, it profiteth me nothing. So, yeah, God changed Paul. Charity suffereth long. It's kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself. Is not puffed up. This is true religion. Doth not behave itself unseemly. Seeketh not her own. Is not easily provoked. Thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hope all things, endureth all things. Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Tongues, they shall cease. Knowledge, it shall vanish. But rather faith, hope, and charity, these are the greatest. Charity is the greatest. A Pharisee became a true Christian and wrote most of the New Testament. 
I'm going to tell you the struggle that Adventists have had about being the light. Because we fell into a heavy dose of Phariseeism in our history. A real heavy dose. The 1888 General Conference session in Minneapolis. Early Adventism developed a full-blown case of Phariseeism. There was the old guard. Uh, right under Ellen White is Uriah Smith, the editor of the main paper, uh, Review and Herald. Below him, the General Conference President, G.I. Butler. Both of them took sides against Ellen White and against these two men that came from the West, Jones and Wagner, ages 38 and 33, respectively. These men came to preach righteous by faith. What is righteous by faith? It basically is putting the spotlight on Christ rather than upon ourselves. That's what it's about. And they thought that that was heresy, just like the Pharisees did. It proved them to be Pharisees. The established church concluded that accepting any of this new teaching would mean that all that the churches stood for during the past 30 years was in error. They closed their minds. Now error would be their truth. Did you hear that? That's what Ellen White faced in 1888. The time when the church was really being posed to set forth on its course to go forth and conquer, it fell headlong into Phariseeism. Headlong into it. Worst time in Ellen White's life. She was shown that church leadership was intoxicated. Isn't that the interesting way of putting it? We don't drink, but we were intoxicated with a spirit of resistance, forming a confederacy to disallow any change of ideas. They were functioning just like the Pharisees of Jesus' day. Prejudice, unbelief, jealousy, evil surmising barred the door of their hearts. A cold, iron-like spirit began separating believers from God and from one another. They were siding against each other. Pride and self-sufficiency, the most hopeless and incurable of sins, settled deeply into their hearts. A cold, satanic criticism, suspecting others of evil intentions, was labeled discernment. Did you hear that? And so this church was with a laser beam focusing on the wrongs of each one and proving themselves right by showing that person to be wrong and that person to be wrong. Priding themselves as being defenders of the truth, while in truth they became traitors to God's cause. And Ellen White was shown, whomever trusted his own righteousness would end up despising others. Phariseeism is coming back full-blown into Adventism in the 2000s. It's coming back full force. The same spirit that lived in Satan and in the Pharisees lived in Adventism in 1888, and it's coming back today. Ellen White's conclusions. Justification is holy of grace. It's not procured by any works that fallen man can do. Hallelujah in some respects that we had the 1888 conference because it really settled some things that needed to be settled. It was a horrible thing for anybody to go through and a hard thing for the church to survive. Anything other than that, heaven would consider treason. I want you to look at that real carefully. If we think that somehow our deeds fit us in some way, even small way for heaven, heaven considers that treason because salvation is based totally upon Christ. And that is treason against that. Okay? 
As late as September 1888, Ellen White said that less than 1% of Adventists understood the basics of the plan of salvation. Now, the church had been in existence now since the 60s, and so that's 20, almost 30 years. We have talked the law, but we have only casually lifted up Christ as a sin-pardoning Savior. And these two ministers, 33 and, what was it, 36? Coming from the West. Those ministers eventually left the church, but they brought to us the most precious message. The churches have been cherishing a spirit which God cannot approve unless they humble their souls before God and possess a different spirit. They will reject God's light and follow spurious lights uh, to the ruin of their own and many other souls. For years, she declared, I have seen that there is a broken link which has kept us from reaching hearts. The Pharisees know nothing about the heart. It is foreign to them. And the church was foreign to hearts. This link is supplied by presenting the love and mercy of God. That's where the church needs to be. If the church can do this, a bright light will shine in it, and people will be drawn to it, and it will cause many good things to happen. Here are the pictures of the two that came and brought that message. This is Wagner in the middle and uh, Jones at the bottom there. One of the things I am certain, this, notice this observation. Please notice this. We're talking about history, and Ellen White was recording her feelings here about this. She says, one of the things that I am certain as Christians, you have no right to entertain feelings of enmity, unkindness, or prejudice towards Wagner, who has presented his views in a plain, straightforward manner as a Christian should. First clue that Ellen White had that the church was wrong and that Wagner and Jones may be right was the attitude in the people that were resisting. She didn't even understand the theology at that time, but she knew that that theology was wrong, or that it, uh, the church's theology was wrong because of the spirit and the people who were promoting it. It was totally not of God. Interesting. Some interpretations of scripture given by Dr. Wagner, she says, I do not regard as correct, but I believe him to be perfectly honest in his views, and I would respect his feelings and treat him as a Christian gentleman. In fact, that he honestly holds some views of scripture differing from yours and mine is no reason why we should treat him as an offender or as a dangerous man and make him the subject of unjust criticism. Brothers and sisters, I told you this is coming back. The things that you read in that last paragraph are starting to happen in the church today. The church is splitting. And people are splitting over these grounds. It's amazing. No one should feel at liberty to give loose rein to the combative spirit. Go back to the publican. The fundamental differences. Pharisees believe righteousness was earned by obedience. Publican knew in his heart that Christ's righteousness must be a free gift. Our strength comes from Christ's righteousness, not ours. There is no power in the law to save. It's law never for that purpose. Boasting in our own works robs us from boasting in Christ. Trusting in our own understanding had a crushing influence, had a crushing influence on the church in 1888. In December of 1888, after noticing the spirit of those who defended the old position, Ellen White observed, 
and these are classic statements, for the first time I began to think it might be we did not hold correct views after all upon the law in Galatians. For the truth required no such spirit to sustain it. I'm telling you today, and this is happening in the last several constituency sessions that I have been to in this Northern California conference. There are two sides. And there's a side that comes up and they, it, carbon copy of Phariseeism, and they will not give in. The wrong spirit is there. At an 1890 ministerial institute, she said, I'm afraid of you. I'm afraid of your interpretation of any scripture which has revealed itself in such an unchristlike spirit as you have manifested and has cost me such unnecessary labor. I say if your views on the law in Galatians and the fruits are of the character I have seen in Minneapolis and ever since up to this time, my prayer is that I may be as far from you, your understanding and interpretation of the scriptures as it is possible for me to be. Can you write better than that? <laughs> That's Ellen White. I think she was writing to the GC president, G.I. Butler, at the time. I am afraid of any application of scripture that needs such a spirit and bears such fruit as you have manifested. One thing is certain, I shall never come into harmony with such a spirit as long as God gives me my reason. This is current truth. It happened... Oh, over a hundred years ago, hundred and forty years, maybe something like that. But it is current truth today. The most convincing testimony that we can bear to others that we have the truth is the spirit which attends the advocacy of that truth. Satan cannot falsify that. It sanct if it sanctifies the heart of the receiver, if it makes him gentle, kind, forbearing, true, and Christ-like, then he will give some evidence of that fact that he has the genuine truth. Men, to suppose they are appointed to criticize and condemn their brethren, are to be feared and shunned. You're going to run across this spirit if you haven't already. Ellen White says, shun it. Get away from it. Those who are so eager to find fault know not what spirit they are of. Oh, I could tell you some things, but I'm not going to. 19, uh, in 1888, November 15, she wrote, Man begins to comprehend himself when he takes his place where? The feet of Jesus. When men turn their attention away from earthly things and look heavenward, when they obtain glimpses of the heavenly glory, they discern more clearly the depths of the human heart and see the depravity of the soul. Amen and amen. The public, in knowing that he had no merit to commend himself to God in utter self-despair, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. All right, here's the last slide. The good news about the church is God, who refuses to give up on us. His grace is never-ending. He is unbelievably patient, remarkably forgiving. He believes in us. His confidence never wanes. My grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness. His faith makes it so. He loves us. His focus is always upon our hearts. 
That's what he's looking for. Not like the Pharisees thought. The key to all what's true is our heart. God's people will be humble and teachable. If you find that, maybe you found the church of Christ. Loving and lovable. If you found that, maybe you found the church of Christ. Beautiful from the inside out. There is good news here. Jesus, in fact, rejoices over his church with singing. Would you love to hear that? Singing about us. Father, may these words bring life and hope and help us to see the church in a whole different way and to cherish it and love it and realize how precious it is. Thank you for this vision. And though we may at times not be able to ignore the fact that there are flaws, you've even recorded a whole lot of them down in your book. <laughs> may it never defer our attention away from the fact that you love this church and it's precious and it will go on and somehow it will become lovely as you have seen it from the very beginning. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.